As you're grabbing your seats, you can grab your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 16. And uh, we have arrived at the end of this letter. And I was telling uh, one of the elders this morning that it's kind of bittersweet for me. It's kind of like saying goodbye to a long, to a friend, sorry, a good friend that you've just uh, had some time to be able to spend some time with them, and then all of a sudden they got to leave, and that's kind of what it feels like for me. Every time I close out a book, I feel like I've just been so immersed and saturated in it, and, and it's kind of sweet in one sense to, to finish it, but it's almost bittersweet saying goodbye, and the good news is, is I can just pick it back up and start reading it again tomorrow. In this letter, Paul has brought us through the, the Christian experience. It's one of the things that's so marvelous and breathtaking and fascinating about the book of Romans. It really does map out the Christian experience in a profound way. In chapters 1 through 3, we, we saw the experience of sin that every one of us goes through, that all have sinned to fall short of the, the glory of God. We saw the depths of our depravity the devastation of sin in this world. But then in chapters 4 to 5, we saw the glories of salvation, the beauty of the gospel that comes to reverse what the curse has done. And then we moved into chapters 6 through 8 where we saw the sanctifying work of the gospel and the power of the Spirit of God to make us alive, to fight against sin, to find victory, to give us the hope of a future to be reminded that if God is for us, who can be against us? Then in chapters 9 through 11, we saw the sovereignty of God over all things and all people. In chapters 12 through 15, we looked at the calling on the Christian life, a life of sacrifice and submission and service. And in chapter 16, we saw and we've seen the reality of the Christian experience to be sent out into this world with the gospel. In the last half of chapters 15 and all the way to the end of chapter 16, Paul summarizes his letter by revealing his heart. We see that the pastoral heart of Paul, a heart that is dedicated to building and serving and shepherding the church of Jesus Christ. Paul lived his life for one thing. He lived to obey the one who called him and sent him to the nations of the world to proclaim the gospel, the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And as we come to the end of this letter, we need to be reminded that Paul was faithful to the end. Paul wrote this letter to strengthen the church in Rome. And he wrote it secondarily to recruit them to supporting his mission of advancing the gospel even as far as Spain. We don't know whether Paul ever made it to Spain, but we know the most important thing that was accomplished. The writing of this magnificent letter that was delivered to the believers in Rome, which ultimately equipped hundreds and thousands of churches and millions of believers to take the gospel, not just to Spain, but to the ends of the earth. This letter has been a call upon the believer to be faithful, to know the gospel, to believe the gospel, and to live the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be faithful to Jesus Christ to be faithful to the very end. So as we end this letter, my prayer has been that we would heed its call, that we would be a faithful people, a faithful church, faithful to the end. Beginning in verse 17, Paul writes these words. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the heart of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan 
under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. As we close out this letter, I want us to look at three priorities the faithful church must practice. How are we going to be faithful to the end? I think the answer is found right here as Paul sums up this entire letter, giving us three priorities the faithful church must practice. The first priority is this, watchfulness that protects God's people from error. Paul begins in verse 17 and 18 with an exhortation, with an appeal, with an urge to the believers. He's urging them to be careful, to be watchful. He says, in effect, watch out, be, be on guard against people who would come in and try to divide and confuse and be an obstacle. This here is a severe warning against deception. In fact, that's the word, the root word that Paul is using here. Those who would creep in, would slither in with smooth talk and be a stumbling block to believers, to the advancement of the gospel, to sanctification. Those who would come in and they would bring contrary teaching. Contrary to what? To what teaching? Notice what Paul says. To the teaching that you have been taught, the things that you have learned, all the things that I have delivered to you in this, this book for 16 chapters. Paul is saying, I have laid out to you the gospel of God, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. But there are people out there who want to teach a, a different gospel, who want to bring false doctrine, who cannot be trusted who are not in it for your good. Watch out for people who come peddling error instead of truth. And if you're going to, to learn to deal with deception as a Christian, one of the things you have to understand here is that it implies that you have first learned the truth. You cannot diagnose error if you do not have a good handle on the truth. And if you've ever kind of been taught anything about how to detect counterfeit bills, I once worked in a bank, and one of the things that I know is that, that in order to detect counterfeit bills, one of the ways they would train us was to become overly familiar with the genuine article. Know what the real thing is, backwards and forwards, inside and out, so that the moment something fraudulent or fake comes across your desk, is put in front of your eyes, you instantly know it's not the real thing. There's something wrong. It doesn't pass the sniff test. For Christians, that means that you must be a people who know the truth of God's Word inside and out. You know the gospel backwards and forwards. You know it deeply within your soul. You have studied it. You have soaked in it. You have learned it. You have loved it. And you have lived it. There is a danger that is facing currently and will always face the church until Jesus returns, and that is the danger of error. There will always be false teachers. There will always be false doctrine, and Paul implies that this danger is already present. He tells the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 that fierce wolves will arise among you. It's all around you. Which implies, secondly, that not only must you know the truth, you actually must also know the opposition. Paul has been commending the church for their unity, 
But there are people out there who are troublemakers, and they do not like the unity the church enjoys. They foster factions, and they stir up strife wherever they go. The question we need to ask is, well, how do we then identify them? And what Paul gives us here is really helpful. He says this, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Let me tell you how we can identify these kind of troublemakers. Their methods reveal their motives. Their methods reveal their motives. You say, well, what are their methods? Their methods are obvious right here. It is smooth talk and flattery. They come along with smooth and eloquent speech, easy to listen to. It sounds so sweet and appealing. It sounds so right. It's so close to the truth. You could hardly detect the error, and if you're not paying attention, you won't. I mean, it makes sense that their speech would be smooth and eloquent. I don't know the last time a false teacher, at least a convincing one, came with abrasive and insulting speech. That wouldn't be very appealing. No, they come with a a, a way about them that seems like it's right. And what's really interesting here is that Paul seems to be drawing a link between these false teachers and Satan himself. The idea of deceit is prevalent in these passages here. Paul sees Satan working through the attractive and compelling speech of adversaries, and I want you to think back to the Garden of Eden here. I think this is exactly what Paul has in his mind. I think this is exactly what he's alluding to. It's exactly where he wants you to go. He wants you to imagine a scene in the garden when Adam and Eve had everything they needed. They had the truth of God's Word. They had God Himself, the presence of God dwelling among them. They had every good thing. And in slithers the smooth-talking serpent. And, and notice, he comes in smoothly, and he comes with flattery, doesn't he? He panders to, to their own benefit, to their own good. He, he pretends like he has a message that's going to be so much better for them. Well, what I'm offering to you, the speech I offer, the message I offer, the good news I offer is better than the good news God offers. It will be better for you in the long run. This is what false teachers do. They come to you with a message that's about you, getting what you want, what you need, what you deserve. It is always a direct assault on the truth of God's Word, always, every time. And Paul tells believers, listen, he tells believers, I have no sympathy for theological laziness. He's commanding the church to watch out, to be on guard. This is a serious matter, and church, we must take it seriously. There are all kinds of gospels being peddled out there. They sound so good, so appealing, but they're false. Notice verse 18, their methods, again, reveal their motives. What are their motives? They don't serve our Lord Christ, but notice this, they serve their own appetites. This bottomless pit of desire, John Stott says that this is a graphic metaphor for self-indulgence. One commentator says they claim devotion to Christ, but their religion is actually a camouflage for self-promotion. They're slaves to their own ego, and while they peddle a false doctrine, they're also pandering, listen to this, they're pandering to selfish desire. What motivates them is what they will often use to motivate you. This is how they, they, they hook people in. They know what's driving them, and so they, they, they wisely, smartly understand that this too will be a motivation for lots of other people. So, so what they'll do is they'll, that maybe they're driven by money or sex or success or affirmation, and they know that you too can be driven by those things. Maybe that's what your heart is after, so they'll, they'll peddle a message that sinks its hooks into those things, and then they'll just reel you in. 
In one sense, your propensity to give in to false doctrine is directly related to your own ability to crucify your desires. So as we just consider this first warning, I want to give you three questions to ask in order to help diagnose false teaching. And by the way, false teaching comes in a variety of forms. It can come through uh, preachers on the radio or television. It can come through books that you, you read that, that are quasi-Christian in nature. I think that's one of the most prominent ways that false gospels are being peddled today. You pick up a book uh, from a Christian distributor, and it appears to be Christian, but its message is far from it. Three questions to ask. Here's the first question. Is this doctrine biblical? Are what they teaching, is it aligning with the truth of the Scripture? Everything you hear, everything you read, I don't care if it comes from a book or a podcast or a a preacher on television or a preacher standing in this pulpit, it must be run through the filter of God's Word. God's Word is the ultimate standard of truth, and it is the grid through which everything must be run and determined to meet the standard. Is this doctrine biblical? Secondly, is this Christ-magnifying? I want you to notice, again, they're in it to magnify themselves. That's what they're after. They want you to love them, to worship them. They want all of your money. They want all your affirmation. They want all of your respect. They want to fly in the fancy gold-plated jets to the beach houses on islands that they purchased with the money of the poor people they're robbing. Does it magnify Christ? Is the message pointing to a person, a human being like me or you? Is it pointing to the one God-man, Jesus Christ? Is it attempting to put Him on full display? Is it calling for allegiance to Jesus Christ alone, surrender to Him alone? And then lastly, let me give you the final question to ask. Does it lead to righteousness or sinfulness? Does it lead to righteousness or sinfulness? Is the message actually leading to greater godliness in my life? Or is it producing a lack of godliness, an emptiness, a hollowness when it comes to spiritual things? Is it pushing me further into my own selfish desires? If it doesn't pass these tests, then mark those people. Watch out. And then I want you to notice, secondly, what he says. The the first command is to watch out. The second one is at the end there, avoid them. Avoid them. End of verse 17. I want you to notice, he doesn't say uh, debate them. He doesn't say befriend them. He doesn't say just welcome them and tolerate them. Just avoid them. That does not mean we hate them. In fact, it often means we must pray for them and pray for their soul. But we are not to engage with them in any kind of meaningful way. Why? Why? He tells us because, listen, because they deceive the naive. They're not in it for the truth, they're in it for themselves. Those who are not rooted in truth are easily deceived by them, which again, church, is another call to not be found in that category. Don't be one of the naive. Don't be spiritually ignorant. Be spiritually informed. Have a robust faith and understanding of the truth of God's Word. That's why, secondly, the priority of the faithful church must practice wisdom that purifies God's children in truth. Verses 19 and 20 really carry on this idea. He's building a case here for how we fend off false teaching and how we continue to grow in holiness. Notice verse 19, for your obedience, your purity, your righteousness is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. Wisdom is the the practical application of truth. It is truth, it is theology lived out in real life. And when practiced, it has both a protective and purifying effect. Paul urges the church to grow here in their discernment. On the whole, he's pleased with them. 
He's, he's encouraging them. He's saying, listen, I know you're pursuing the Lord. I know you're, you're being faithful. I know you love the truth, but, but you are not above deceptive influence in your life. Be careful when you think you're standing firm. No temptation has seized you but that which is common to man. Listen, I, I don't care how strong you are in the faith. I don't care how long you've been walking in the faith. You are not above deceptive influences in your life. And you and I have an ongoing responsibility to be students of the Word of God, students of the truth. The call here is to be wise in what is good. It's like he's saying, listen, I want you to be good at what is good. You must continue in obedience, which is really, by the way, obedience is just faith in action. He says, be, be innocent in what is evil. Uh, the, the commentator, J.B. Phillips, he, he gives a translation that I think is really helpful. He says this. He says, I want you to be experts in what is good and not even beginners in what is evil. I love that. I want you to be experts in what is good and not even beginners in what is evil. I don't want you flirting with anything evil. I don't want you, you getting anywhere close to what is evil, but I want you to be experts. I want you to grow in your ability to know what is good and to do what is good. There's a, a similarity here to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, where he tells them that he wants them to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And, and remember, he says that in a context where he's sending them out into a, a, into a, a, you know, a, a sheep amidst fierce wolves. And he says, I want you to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I, I want you to be experts in what is good, and I want you to be beginners in what is evil. Be little babies when it comes to evil. There is a war going on between the desire to do good and evil. And this is just a war outside of us. It's a battle within us. We saw this in Romans chapter 7, remember? By the way, Paul uses this, the same word for deceive. He uses it there in Romans 7 with the deceptive nature of sin in, in his own heart. Our sin nature still fights with tremendous power. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, in regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. And I think what he's saying to us is that the life of faith must be, yes, received with the innocence and purity of the faith of a child, but lived in the maturity and reality of an adult who knows there was a war going on. I mean, that's why our mission statement is what it is. We want to see lost people saved, saved people matured, matured people multiplied all to the glory of God. We cannot stay infants in the faith. There's too much at stake, including your own sanctification in the Christian life. We need the light of God's Word and the power of God's Spirit to guide us into the truth. The Word of God must be the purifying agent in our lives to protect us from error, to purify us in truth. To be wise in regard to good is to, to learn it. Again, like I said before, it is to learn it, it is to love it, it is to live it. Listen, you, you want to be wise in the truth? I was reading through this past week, Psalm 119, and I just, I'll just encourage you, listen, if you want to be wise to the truth, if you want to love the truth, and you want to see how to live the truth, go read Psalm 119. I mean, watch how the psalmist speaks of the Word of God, how, how he knows the commands and the law of God. He knows the precepts, but he delights in them. They're sweeter to him than honey that's dripping from the, the honeycomb. They're, they're his greatest possession. He treasures them above gold and silver. I mean, he loves them so much. And you see, here's the deal. If you learn it without loving it, you will never live it, Okay? You need to hear, if you learn it without loving it, you will never live it. Why? Because it will be a burden to you. It'll be drudgery. It'll be painful. You'll look at the, the Word of God and you'll say, God, I hear what you want me to do, but this doesn't seem good for me. It doesn't seem best for me. It's going to spoil all my fun. It's going to ruin my life. But the man or woman who looks intently into this law 
and sees how good it is and learns to delight in it and love it with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength because in it is revealed, listen, the God who created all things, the God who wants to know you and draw near to you, the God who wants to bless you, the God who is a good Father who, who, as Psalm 119 says, is good and does good. When you love it, you, you, I promise you, you will live it far more faithfully. And it's hard to do. It's not easy. I don't want to stand up here and pretend like this is an easy task that's been given to us. In fact, it's, it's, a fight in our, it's, it's the fight of our lives to, to cling to the Word of God, to believe it, to love it, and to, to live it. But there is hope that He builds into this. Listen, sometimes we get so defeated. We're like, man, this is so hard. I keep failing. I'm, I'm, I'm not that good at this. And look what he says in verse 20. Look at the hope that he injects here. This is so awesome. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He puts this war in a much larger context, in its, in its broader spiritual context. And look what he says. By the way, this is the only mention of Satan in this entire book. And he wants you to know, Christian, that Satan is real. He is real, and, and listen, that Christians can make two mistakes, right? They can fall into two ditches. They, they can fall into the ditch that Satan is behind every rock and tree. Satan's responsible for everything that ever happens to me, and I have almost no responsibility in my life of sin. But the other danger is to believe that Satan doesn't even exist at all. It's not really, it's not really something that we need to consider. But let me remind you what the Scriptures actually say about Satan. He is real. He is a thief, a liar from the beginning. He is a deceiver. He is your adversary. He is a murderer from the beginning. He is the serpent who wants to bring death to everything in your life. He wants you to stay and remain in captivity to your sin, your shame, and your guilt he has come to steal, kill, and destroy. He is your great accuser, the Scripture says, standing before God day and night. And you don't want to know what He wants to do to you, Christian? He, he wants you. He's, he's standing before God and says, see God, look at them. They are unworthy sinners. You should punish them right now. They don't deserve you, God. They don't deserve grace. They don't deserve mercy. They deserve your wrath right now. Look at them. They're pathetic. They're weak. They're feeble. And he often causes us in our lives, listen, to minimize sin and maximize condemnation. Well, he will cause you to look at the sin in your life and to say that's not that big of a deal. He, he wants you to think that those little sins that you flirt with, that you, you kind of have built into your life every day, the, the habits of your life, it's not that big of a deal. He, he wants to come alongside you in, in, in the moment of your temptation. You know what he wants to say? He wants to say, hey, just do it. Just do it. It's okay. It's worth it. Nobody will ever know. There's not going to be any consequences. This is what you deserve. And then the moment, the moment you do it, he wants to scream in your ear, you deserve death. You're pathetic. You're unworthy. You, you can't be loved by God. You can never be accepted by God. You should be ashamed of yourself. There's no forgiveness for you. There's no hope for you. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to, to reel you in, and then he wants to stomp all over you once he's caught you. For some of you, this is, this is the battle of your life right now. Satan is hoping that you will believe his lies over God's truth. And one of the things you need to recognize is that his weapons are powerful. His weapons are powerful. Here's his weapons, church. Listen, accusations, lies, and deceit. Those are the weapons of Satan. Accusations, lies, and deceit. And his ammunition, it's your sin, 
your shame, and your guilt. And it's very effective, isn't it? I mean, it's incredibly effective, and here's why. Because we know that we are not innocent concerning evil. But, but look what he reminds us of right here. Victory. Victory. It is a victory over Satan, over sin, and over death. Why does he use this language of crushing? If you're, if you're a, a faithful Bible reader, you know again what Paul is trying to do. He's bringing you right back to the garden. So Adam and Eve, they, they did. They, they, they fell prey to the deceptive, smooth-talking serpent. And in that moment, like you and I both know, all of humanity suffered for it. Removal from God's presence, sin comes entering in and ruins everything. Death becomes the new reality for humanity. The serpent who deceived Adam and Eve, he brought all of humanity into the corruption of sin. The curse of sin weighs heavily upon all creation, but it was promised in that moment. In Genesis 3.15, God spoke hope into the darkness, into the brokenness, and he said that one would be born of the woman, an offspring, a singular individual, and he would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus, the promised offspring of the woman, came and he opposed the work of Satan by responding with truth. Listen to this. He, when Jesus came, this is why this, this is why it had to be Jesus. It had to be God in flesh because he had to perfectly obey God. He had to face the temptation of Satan head on, the Satan that crippled humanity, Adam in the garden, Israel in the wilderness. Here comes Jesus Christ. He is tempted, but he responds with truth and obedience. And then, in obedience to the Father, He decisively wins the victory over Satan when He was crushed for us on the cross. As Isaiah 53 reminds us, He was wounded there for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by His stripes we are healed. You see, and in that moment on the cross, He destroyed the ammunition of Satan. By taking our sin, our shame, and our guilt upon himself as our great substitute, he hung on the cross, and he bore all of that, all that Satan wants to accuse you with. He took on himself, and he said, no more, it is finished. He takes all of that, and instead he gives us all righteousness, listen, all peace and all joy, so that now when Satan comes with his accusations, do you want to know what you get to say? You say, Satan, you're right. You're right. I, I don't deserve any of God's mercy or any of God's grace, and I am a wretched sinner, but I am in Christ. He has given to me his righteousness. I stand before God right now just as if I have never sinned, not even once, and I am accepted by God because I am standing before him just as if I've always obeyed because I am in Christ Jesus. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. He is my everything. And Scripture says, listen, that the cross, this is amazing news for us, Christian, who are, who are living in this world still. Jesus actually disarmed Satan. Look at Colossians 2.15 on the screen. It says this, that at the cross, that he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is what the cross did to the demonic powers that are still present in this world. In the ancient world, in military conquest, to demonstrate that the enemy no longer is the threat that they once were, what you would do is you would take their weapon once you defeated them. And then you take the leader of that group, and what you would do is you would put their, their head in the dust, and then you would put your foot on their head to show that ruler has been conquered. And Paul is saying that in the cross, that's exactly what Jesus did to Satan. He put his foot on his head. He 
crushed it. The enemy that we once feared, listen, here's what this means, Christian. The enemy we once feared, we no longer need to fear. And we don't need to fear because the enemy has been disarmed. He's no longer the threat to you that he once was. He, he's a, yes, he's a roaring lion, but he's, he's a toothless lion. So now when, when, when Satan accuses you, when he holds your sins in your face, you stand in confidence because you stand by faith in Christ And you know what Paul is saying? And in doing so, every time you do that, you crush the accusations because Christ's victory is your victory. Did you notice what he says here? This is amazing. Whose feet is he crushing Satan under? Come on, church, look down with me. Look at the Bible, okay? This is important. Whose feet? Our feet. Satan gets crushed under your feet and mine. How is that possible? Because Christ's victory is our victory. He gives it to us freely. We, we, we march behind our king in his victory. Your standing in Christ is your victory over Satan and his lies so that we respond in truth. And when the accusations come, we respond. Listen, I think this is really important to understand. This may be the most important thing that you hear in this entire sermon. When the accusations come, you want to know how we're supposed to respond, church? By laughing in the face of Satan. Just laugh at him. I'm, ser- I'm dead serious. Laugh at him and rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power that Satan has now, listen, is only the power you choose to give him. When we continue in sin, in unrepentant sin, we give Satan room to work. We buy into the lies. We doubt God. We doubt His Word, His truth. We doubt His goodness. And maybe that's you today. And so one of the things that you need to hear in light of this, you're like, how do I get, how do I get back from that place? One of the ways we fight back church is through repentance. You're simply acknowledging, God, I haven't trusted you. I haven't believed that you are good. I haven't, I haven't believed your word. I haven't believed what you've said. I've believed the lies. Forgive me, God. And, and then we respond through faith. God, I trust you. I trust that you are good. I trust you are doing good. I trust your word is everything I need. And then we respond through faithful obedience. We put one foot in front of the next. We we believe with all of our hearts that God's word is better than Satan's lies, and we keep stepping forward through faithful obedience. Church, we are in a battle a battle that was decisively won at the cross is continually won as we walk in truth here and now, and it's a battle in which, listen, we rejoice because we know the end. The God of peace will one day soon crush Satan under your feet. He's coming back. Satan's been given the death blow, and when Jesus returns, he's putting an end to all sin, all death. There will no longer be any more Satan over. So get back up, Christian. Stand firm in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God until He comes. One author says, listen, we can, until He comes, we can experience regular victories and partial crushings as we know, believe, and rejoice in the truth that purifies us and allows us to walk in the wisdom of God. Do you know this victory today? Do you know what the Scriptures teach? That He is faithful and just. Listen, if you repent of your sins, you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. If you don't know the victory of Jesus today, then come, come and enjoy it. Come and find hope in the gospel. Turn to Him. Repent of your sins. Cast yourself at His mercy and grace. Plug your ears to the guilt and shame and accusations of Satan and open your arms to the loving embrace, to the mercy and grace of the Father. He can take your sin, your shame, and your guilt and give you the righteousness, joy, and peace that can only be found in Him. The final priority for the faithful church, what we must practice is this. Worship that proclaims God's glory through Christ. 
These last verses, Paul begins by sending some more greetings on behalf of more faithful servants. And then he gives a final doxology, which contains profound truths about God and the gospel. He works through this, this list. We're not going to go through it in any depth here. We've read the names. They, they send their greetings. They're all faithful believers. A couple things just to make note of. Uh, verse 22, Tertius, who says he wrote this letter. You're like, I thought Paul wrote this letter. He did. This is, this is Paul's scribe. Paul dictated these letters, and they were faithfully written down. But then one other thing just to quickly take note of, you're like, just look, look down quickly at verse 24 with me. <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, I got the King James Version. It's right here. <laughs> Which is true. Which is true. And the, the simple answer, you're like, why isn't there? Well, well, my Bible, if you have the ESV, you'll just notice that there's a little footnote there. It drops you down to the bottom and it says, some manuscripts insert verse 24, which says this, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Which is exactly the same as what he's already said at the end of verse 20. And so here's, here's what's happened. Um, it's what we call a scribal error. Uh, as the manuscripts, which are just a vast amount of manuscripts for the Scriptures were copied by uh, scribes over the years. Sometimes they made what they call scribal errors. The one thing you just need to know is that they didn't impact any major doctrine. They're just simple human mistakes where they looked down, they copied maybe the wrong line. You know, they copied the, the same line that was above them. They just copied it down here by accident. And other scribes then got that, got that and they, they copied it just the same. But the reason verse 24 isn't in most of our, our copies of Scripture is because the oldest and best manuscripts don't have it there. That's always the best way that they, they do Bible translations. They go with the oldest and best manuscripts, and so it's simply not there. But um, if that bothers you in any way, just notice that Paul's already said it, so it's just be doubling up on what he's already said. These final three verses are really where I just want to land the plane here. Mostly because that's what Paul's doing. And what he's really doing here is he's summarizing the entire book. He's looking at four basic things that he began the book with. The power of God, the gospel of Christ, the evangelization of the nations, and the praise of God's wisdom. There are amazing similarities between the end of the book, the closing of this book, and the opening of this book. And it's really masterful of Paul. I mean, he's brilliant and he's inspired by the Spirit of God, but these are the bookends to the book of Romans, and Paul wants to make it clear that he's wrapping this up, and so he ends with this masterful doxology, verse 25, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of the faith. That's a long sentence. And it's like Paul is just kind of gathering up everything that he's been saying, and he's just like, he's just spitting it back out to you, and he just, he doesn't want to even punctuate it. He just wants you to hear it all together. How can we, as a church, as a people of God, be faithful to the end? Here's how. He tells us how in verse 25. Now to him who is able. One translation says it like this. Glory be to him who is able. He's wanting us to see the God that we worship. Listen, we all worship someone or something. The question is who or what. And he wants us to make sure that our gaze is fixed on the only one who is worthy of all worship. The one, listen, who provides all things for our salvation and our sanctification and one day our glorification. He, he wants us to make sure that our gaze is so fixed on Him. In fact, the word He uses here that our God is able to, to strengthen or establish us, really the word established is a much better word. And the word indicates this immovability, a firmness, 
It's amazing in that, that storm we just had not too long ago, right? I remember driving down a few streets and just seeing these massive trees just buckled right over, roots kind of just pulled right out of the ground. And it, and it reminds me, listen, that there are things that look stable in this world, but when the storms of life hit, they can just be blown right over. But you see, what he's telling us here is that if we understand the God that we worship, it means this, that, that our God is able to take the roots of our faith and sink them so deeply into the ground that no matter what kind of storm comes our way in this life, He will keep us firmly established and immovable for Him. Paul loves this language. Let me just remind you just quickly what the Scriptures teach, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Ephesians 3.20, now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. 2 Timothy 1.12, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that He is able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. The author of Hebrews in chapter 7, verse 25 says, consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jude, verse 24, now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, we worship the God who is able. Paul wants our worship to be informed. You see, where does this strength come from? It is according to my gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ. It is according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Our source of strength and power, our ability to be established in the Christian life is found right here in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is what we need, not just the moment of our salvation. It is what we need every single day for our sanctification. It is what will one day lead to our ultimate glorification. God is the source of all the power, and we need Him. The power is accessed through the gospel preached and believed. He began His letter like this, didn't He? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. We will only be faithful to the end if we are established by the message of Christ that is found in the gospel. It is found here in the prophetic writings. You notice what he calls them? He calls them the mystery that was long hidden in ages past. Well, what's the mystery? What's the mystery? Simply put, the mystery is that Jesus Christ has come to save not only Jews, but Gentiles who now have an equal share with Israel in God's promise. That God, as He says in Ephesians, is creating one new man. He's torn down the dividing wall. And while you look at the Old Testament, there is hardly any Gentiles saved. You look at the New Testament, God is, is redeeming Jews and Gentiles, and He's knitting them together in one family. That's the mystery that was there. It was there in the Old Testament. It was, it was concealed in many ways, but it was there. It has now been fully revealed in the New Testament Scriptures. God is saving people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And it even, it's even better than that. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. He says, God is making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. See, what exactly does that mean? Here's what it means. This is the power of the gospel. It unites once divided people. It unites unlikely people. It unites undeserving people. And that power, what God is doing in the church in uniting us all together, that power points to the reality that one day God in the fullness of time will, by the power of the gospel, unite all things to Himself. The gospel is bigger than you and me. You realize that? The gospel is about God reversing the curse that destroyed this broken world. It's about God promising or fulfilling to do, do what He promised He would do. 
He is recreating people broken by sin now and will one day recreate everything that has been broken by sin. It's not enough uh, to read Romans and come to grips with sin, to be saved, to make progress in sanctification, to understand God's sovereignty, and to live sacrificially, submissively, and as a servant. I want you to hear what Paul says here in verse 26. He says, but it's been disclosed through the prophetic writings. Why? It has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about, look at this, the obedience of faith. If we have not embraced being sent by God to those who do not yet embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have not embraced all of the book of Romans. God may send us across the street to our neighbor or across the ocean to another nation, but we must be willing to go. Our salvation, our sanctification, and service, they're all means to an end that all nations might believe and obey Him. But the ultimate end of this mission is worship. You you can't confuse this. You can't miss this. It's a worship that proclaims God's glory through Christ. It's a worship of God that sends us because we we look at the love of God for us, and in response to Him, we we love Him, and we, we long for His glory to be put on full display. We long for His glory to cover the the land like waters cover the sea, and we long for more people to know Him and to give glory to Him through their worship and proclamation of Christ. Paul ends this majestic letter with worship. You need to see this. His theology always leads him to doxology. The study of God always leads to the worship of God. And in verse 27, he says, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. You see, in the wisdom of God, he has determined to unite in Christ a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And Revelation 7 says, They will spend eternity ascribing to him praise and glory wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength. And in the end, we will stand with the multitudes and we will worship the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. In the end, we will bow in humble and joyful worship to the King of kings and the Lord of lords who gave His life for us. In the end, we are going to see that everything that we had to give up in this life, everything we may have to suffer for the the sake of Jesus Christ, All of it will be worth it in the end. So let us be faithful to the very end and declare with the Apostle Paul, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.